This is Generation Justice. I'm Amali Gordon Buxbaum. And I'm Yusuf Amr. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. Tonight, we look back on the 52nd New Mexico Legislative Session. We are joined by Adrienne Barboa of Strong Families New Mexico and Emma Senval of the Southwest Organization Pro- Pro- Project, or SWAP. Adrienne and Emma will help us unpack some of the legislation that passed and failed during this recent session. We also have some cool opportunities to get out and have a good time in our community. But before all of this, we'll start with some music. Here is Lampshade for My Brain by Seth Hoffman. Listening to NPR, hearing stories in the news. Parts make me smile and think for a while. Some parts give me the blues. From the US to Chile, China and Japan. The 52nd New Mexico legislative session just ended. This year was a 30 day session focused on the budget. Issues and bills were mostly concerning the new $6.2 billion budget, and overall, the budget was cut. Tonight, we are joined by Adrienne Barboa from Strong Families New Mexico and Emma Sandoval from the Southwest Organizing Project to hear more about what happened during the session and what it means for New Mexican families. Now, here's our own Edwin Rivera with Emma and Adrienne. Hi, my name is Edwin Rivera, a youth member of Generation Justice. I am joined by Emma Sandoval from SWAP and Adrian Barboa of Strong Families New Mexico. Both Emma and Adrian have been following the legislative session. They're here tonight to tell us about what happened at the Roundhouse. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Can you please tell me more about yourselves and your organizations? My name is Emma Sandoval and I'm with the Southwest Organizing Project. Um, Southwest Organizing Project is a 35-year-old organization that works to empower disenfranchised communities of the Southwest to realize racial and gender equality and social and economic justice. And we do that through grassroots community organizing and policy advocacy on five different issue areas, including women, food justice, environmental justice, youth organizing, and through civic engagement. And Strong Families New Mexico is a community and policy organizing project. We work so that families have all the resources, recognition that they need to thrive. So we mostly do that through policy change, um, which includes everything from door to door to legislative to get out the vote. And we do it through culture shift, so trying to decrease the shame and stigma around all our families. What area or bills were you covering or following at the session? So Strong Families is a network of organizations from across the state. We tracked over 140 bills that were priorities to our um, organizations from across the state and individuals we've been working with in four priority counties. Um, But of those 140, we provided like testimony to some that were really specific or that could be moving through the session. We were able to be following really closely and felt like we had an impact in moving um, the 
Senate Joint Memorial 10 that was a limited English language access task force, and it would create a task force that's going to look at how do our state um, agencies actually um, get in compliance with providing all the language access that our communities need. And that was actually led by New Mexico Asian Family Center. Um, there was another Memorial 12 that Senator Souls led around Dona Ana community youth-centered programs. And in Las Cruces and Mesilla Valley, there was a group of students that um, had really said that they were there trying to combat the ways that alcohol and drugs and violence is impacting the youth in their community. And so Senator Souls took that upon, made this memorial, and so we look forward to actually seeing that happen in southern New Mexico. Um, on the other good note, I think there was House Bill 97 that Representative Andres Romero from here in the South Valley of Albuquerque, he pushed a bill that would eliminate extra assessment of students in the ninth and 10th grade. And it passed all the way through, is actually on its way to the governor's desk. It does not take out park. He did this work to eliminate these extra assessments that were in place before park um, and really only for ninth and 10th graders. And that's on its way to the governor's desk. At SWAP, we were focusing on um, issues that related specifically to women, youth, and families inside of our state. We focused a lot of our time around legislation that would support and empower families, including giving them the access to the resources that they need, so desperately like access to food, access to early childhood education, et cetera. And then we were also focusing a large amount of our time, like Adrienne said, on fighting some of these really punitive crime bills because we know that ultimately those bills really hurt youth and families inside of our state. We're not actually in a time in our state where we're able to give our families the resources that they need to thrive and be successful, and that these policies or these like laws would actually really impact um, our families and make it much more challenging than it already is. Can you tell us more about the teen curfew bill? Yes, actually, the teen curfew bill is something that um, I think a coalition of organizations have been working on for quite some time, actually. The issue first arose during um, the summer of this past summer in 2015 um, because of increased incidences where young people were involved in violent crimes in our state. Um, those were really tragic incidences, and we acknowledge how they definitely impact our communities. But the reality is crime has decreased inside of our, inside New Mexico significantly by youth, particularly since the 1990s. And uh, we also know that young people have been extremely targeted um, and criminalized over the past few years, and we wanted to make sure that, that racial profiling didn't happen and different types of interactions with police um, did not have to happen more frequently with our young people. The city council um, was actually the one that brought the issue up and saying that they wanted to do um, a resolution that would ask the governor to put this on her call. And so um, our organizations came together, all of us that you know work with young people and know what young people need to be successful and to thrive. And, and we all know that young people are really um, the solution to the problems in our community and shouldn't be treated as the problem. And so we came together and um, did some organizing to try to defeat that resolution. Um, ultimately, it was withdrawn the same day that when we were fighting that, but the governor had already chosen to put that on her call. Um, so our organizations continue to organize. We know we had a lot of conversations with our young people about um, the potential for a curfew, and one of the places that they felt they had the most access to was to their local school board. We organized about 75 young people to go out and speak to the school board during a school board meeting, and 
uh, the board unanimously approved a resolution saying that they would not support a teen curfew because it would hurt students inside Albuquerque Public Schools, which was um, a pretty you know awesome victory for us because then we were able to feel like you know our young people had some support from their adult allies who they felt most connected to. It was really important for us to, I think, work collectively together to bring young people's voices to be a part of that process because they're the ones that are often the least heard and they're often the ones that have the most valuable things to say about how something like that would actually be implemented every single day in the community. A lot of people think, well, of course, crime, there's crime existing and uh, we, we need to solve that, but they don't understand how exactly a teen curfew has not only hurt our community in the past, but how when implemented, it can actually be much more problematic for um, not just young people, but also for families. So, like I said, the combined efforts, being there at every committee hearing, talking to every legislator that might be voting on this, you know, from young people and organizations coming together, staying there to late hours in the evening, waiting for the for the bill to be heard, um, staying the test of time, and we're finally able to defeat the bill in its very last committee before it got to the Senate floor. So, <clears throat> again, I think the biggest stories that we work together and even um, against powerful forces, we showed the pow- the people power and how um, bringing that together and, and the youth voice was important to us. I think the other piece to it is that um, you know, there was families, like Emma mentioned, that this actually ha- sort of came up from a family that had faced that, you know, violent crimes and um, that man, the Mr. Grecki, I believe his name is, that was killed by those five young people. Um, You know, those families were there and they really um, passionately felt like they needed to do something in response to the violence that their families have faced. It was Mr. Grecki and other families who have faced violent crimes. And I can empathize with them. I've um, had a loved one of mine um, violently murdered. And I can say that, yeah, justice wasn't served in that case either. But putting um, more criminalization onto our families is not the way to solve it. It does nothing to deter crime. So I think, you know, one of the best pieces about it was folks like Emma and I I shared, my daughter came, shared her own story, um, sharing their stories about their interactions with police and why that's not the best thing for our young people. So I'm proud of that work that we did together. It's really great that you guys defeated the bill. You guys came together, had power, and lifted the youth's voice. Yes. Adrian, can you tell us more about the Strong Families Report Cards? Yeah, I'll be super quick about it, but um, the report card was actually from 2015, and we le- gave, this year was our first year giving legislators a grade. So um, <laughs> it was interesting, I know. We had over 170 people come up for our legislative day to hand deliver the report cards to legislators. It's a hard thing to do, one, to give a legislator a grade or to speak one-on-one with a legislator, but also to give them a grade to their face, right? And <laughs> to sit there and say, you got us. B or you got an F and this is why. So while that was difficult, our families, the, out of the 170 people that we were able to bring up on that day, um, were able to do it and felt empowered to be able to talk about what was important to their communities and really hold legislators accountable to voting for what is best for all our families, not just a privileged few that might live behind a picket fence that a lot of our families, especially here in New Mexico, don't really ever get to see. I think it is really important that legislators get grades so they can see on what they should improve on. There were a lot of bills under public safety. Can you tell us more about the bills that passed? So I would start by saying, yeah, like I, like I said, there was a lot. Um, there um, were several 
um, increased penalties for DWI. There was several um, that passed on to the, that are all again are headed to the governor's desk, so it's not final until she actually signs them. But um, there were bills that increased penalties for youthful offenders that are already in the system. So, um, you know, we were able to defeat the teen curfew bill, and that impacts youth that aren't currently in the system. There, there's a lot of bills that are going to negatively impact young people that are in the system right now, um, either on probation, parole, or in the um, in the detention centers, and a lot for adults that um, increase penalties around things that you know really don't do anything to deter crime. So the idea that public safety um, is couched behind. Um, just incarcerating our families. Really what we'd like to say is like, no, public safety for New Mexicans means roads, it means access to health care, it means jobs and living wage jobs, and um, it means that our kids have transportation to schools and you know I've talked to some that we work in McKinley County and Gallup area and there are families there that can't get their kids to school on time because the bridge is washed out and nobody is going to take responsibility to fix that bridge or at least in a timely manner so those families are trying to find new ways and to me that's public safety when we can secure that we have a safe ride to school and to work and um, when we have the health care we need not just criminalizing families. If we were really wanted to talk about what a safe community looks like, we'd be talking about investing in the resources that our communities need to thrive. And we didn't have a lot of conversation about that. Actually, we had a lot of conversation about making cuts because of a lack of revenue that we had this year and who was going to have to take the brunt of the uh, shortfall in our budget. And um, I think when we talk about crime and public safety, you cannot talk about crime without talking about poverty. We can't have a conversation about crime unless we talk about making sure that that our communities are well-resourced, that they have access to jobs, that they have access to early childhood education and behavioral health services that can actually um, prevent people from doing crimes in the first place. And we never had those conversations. We jumped right away to saying, uh, let's, let's be tough on these people and punish them harder. But one of the things that I learned the most from my own personal story, because in my family, uh, my mother was an addict, and she was in and out of the justice system when I was a child. And one of the biggest things that I ever took away that over that is you can never punish somebody or hurt somebody more than they are already hurting themselves when they use drugs or when they are committing these kinds of crimes. They are already hurting. We are literally... Um, hurt people hurt tend to hurt people, and uh, our solution can't be to hurt them and punish them into wanting to change their lives. It actually doesn't work. It perpetuates a cycle of poverty, of oppression, and it hurts our communities more than it helps. Huh? So we, we really need to be focusing on um, making sure that people have access so that they're not committing crimes because they're hungry, so they're not committing crimes because they have mental health problems, and we're not doing enough of that. And um, in the same session, ironically, we, you know, we were met with these budget shortfalls, and we were literally talking about cutting millions of dollars to behavioral health programs where people can get access to treatment um, if they're on drugs and all these things. And for me, as somebody who has literally like lived with homelessness, with hunger, with um, having to grow up in a, in a family that was broken, it's really hurtful to me to hear our communities talking about how can we better put people in jail and make sure they stay in jail instead of talking about how can we make sure to feed people, how can we make sure to help our communities. Um, and that's that. I feel like that's also used as a, as a political motive for the upcoming election cycle. We they just want to talk about who was tough on crime and who was not, and um, to put politics over putting people and putting politics over our families. 
um, is really harmful, I think, and dangerous, um, especially when we're talking about one in three children inside of New Mexico are hungry. And so um, that was like what I think was for me was the biggest takeaway from like these crime bills was that our some of our legislators were literally willing to play politics with our families. And that's very, very, very harmful, dangerous and scary in my eyes because so many people bought into it. So I think it's really important that we're making sure that they have what they need as opposed to figuring out how to how to better punish them. When you said you could never punish somebody or hurt somebody more than they are already hurting themselves when they are using drugs, it really stood out to me. So thank you for sharing your story. Wow, there's a lot that happened this session. Yes, and we'll hear more from Adrienne and Emma on the legislative session after this song, which was chosen by Adrienne. This is Hey Young World by Slick Rick. Welcome back to Generation Justice. Here again is Edwin Rivera discussing the 52nd New Mexico Legislative Session with Adrienne Barboa and Emma Sandoval. What do you think happened during this session that hurt New Mexico families? Another piece that I didn't talk about that we were able to defeat as well, which took a lot of our effort, again, collective effort of many organizations, was to defeat all of the anti-abortion bills. So um, Strong Families New Mexico, along with several other organizations, um, work year-round to make sure that women have the access to um, safe and legal reproductive health care, including abortion, um, and that our families, you know, are able to make those kind of decisions for themselves, the decisions that are important. Those kind of decisions should be made within families, not for government to make it for families. Um, so we were able to defeat four of those bills. You know, there was four bills, and in a time, like I'm already stated, when we're facing stark realities of hunger and no education and no jobs, that really using our time and energy um, and taxpayer dollars to continue to take away um, families' personal medical decisions is really, um, to me, feels like a waste of our time and taxpayer dollars. Um, so we're able to defeat that. The biggest thing that we're still waiting to finally be signed is the budget. Um, and uh, yeah, there all of the legislators from both sides of the aisle, both political parties, um, we're talking about how the huge budgets are impacting the whole entire state. And we already heard that um, from one of our community members here that Alamosa Community Center on the west side of Albuquerque is going to be shutting down. The clinic um, will be shutting down there. And that clinic provides vital services to that entire community, including the male involvement project. and. Those the South Valley of Albuquerque is the one of the most um, has the highest disparities has the highest need for these kind of services. So it's really interesting to me that that is the first place that we've learned that's getting cut. And I'm um, you know I'm sure we're going to be hearing about much more programs that our families rely on um, to to that are going to be getting cut. 
I think a lot of the bills that also got cut that I think are really detrimental to our families was um, related to food and having access to food. Um, there was less money being invested into programs that were previously existing um, to make sure that families had that adequate access to healthy food. Um, and I think the other one that I thought was really bad and frustrated me, I think, a lot was uh, the Breakfast After the Bell program became optional, where previously um, students were able to eat um, eat breakfast inside their classrooms for free. Everybody in the school that was, as long as the school was over a certain percent of um, of low, like uh, qual that people that qualify for free or reduced lunch, everybody was able to eat breakfast in the classroom. Um, we know that, like it's in our families, that sometimes it's hard to get our kids to school in time because our families work evenings, because they work late, because they're managing taking multiple children to school on time and to make sure that they get fed before they get there can even be more challenging. So sometimes, you know, that one is, I think, really sad. I like had a really hard time seeing that program leave because I know that that was a program that I utilized with my son and that I think was really important and valuable to our, our student, our children in our state. I think it is so sad that they're shutting down that clinic. Also, I think it is important that New Mexico children have food programs that impacts how they learn. Can you share with us what passed during this session that will potentially be good for New Mexico families? So, like I said, we're excited about the Eliminates rigorous assessment taking, um, test taking for ninth and 10th grade students. That looks favorable to get signed and get into implementation starting next school year. So, um, in the 2016 fall of school year that should be implemented, which at least that relieves a little bit of stress. Um, and then I think there, um, there is some pieces in the budget around getting access to contraceptions and family planning for families. Um, really, you know, the best I can say is that at least um, some of our representatives up there in Santa Fe did a really good job of trying to keep the conversations around taxes and economy and broadband access is another conversation that over the last two years we've seen more and more bills being um, pushed forward and although they're not getting passed, um, they're exciting that people are talking about that because we need, our communities need access. It's no longer an option everywhere to for school for to get a job. You need to be able to get online and some families, even in Albuquerque, don't have that, but especially outside of metro areas and in our rural communities, um, broadband access is really uh, a hard thing to come by. And then the work of um, groups like Generation Justice and the, Christ, the New Mexico Speaks Crisis for um, behavioral health um, is really it's keeping that conversation alive. That that that's our biggest need, and that not letting it go by that like as if it's um, not one of the biggest crises that we're facing. So. I think those good things <laughs> um, continue to happen as far as legislation bills. We'll have to see the final results of the budget. Um, hopefully there's some things in there that keep services and resources for our families. What can people do at this point in time? I think one of the um, opportunities that we have coming up is, is um, I mean, we still have an opportunity to be able to call the governor based on certain legislation that's already on her desk to help make sure that she signs that and enacts that. Um, but I think another opportunity that we have most definitely is that um, it's a, a, an election year. Um, I feel like a lot of the rhetoric that was used inside the legislative session is being used as an opportunity to um, have deeper conversations later on during um 
during those election seasons about um, crime and saying that like some of our representatives weren't tough on crime. And I, th I just really hope that um, our communities look past that and look beyond that to know um, that maybe those things aren't always the best solutions for our communities and that we really need to be um, looking at who is willing to um, to best represent our communities by making sure that our families have access to the resources that they need and um, not allow a sens sensationalized media um, coverage of how somebody did during the session, especially this session since it was so challenging. And um, I think that it's gonna be really important for our communities to get out and vote because that is the number one way that we have an opportunity to um, have our voices be heard in the legislative session. We don't always have the access to be able to lobby. It's actually really challenging, especially if you have a job, if you go to school, and we know that because it's really hard we, as community lobbyists to just get ourselves up there sometimes. Um, and it can be very frustrating to feel like your voice isn't valued in that process, but the number one place that you have to have a voice inside this, this decision-making process is voting. So um, get educated on who those people are that are gonna be running, and um, definitely get out and vote based on um, who would best serve our communities. And I just remember, I'd be amiss to not talk a little bit about the driver's licenses. So Strong Families New Mexico provide testimony. We definitely didn't lead on the strategy around driver's licenses, but after a six-session fight around driver's licenses, um, a compromise has been reached, and a compromise that our community groups that work with immigrant families um, are happy about. They're happy that um, there's not going to be fingerprints for the 90,000-plus existing um, undocumented New Mexicans that have a driver's licenses, they get to keep their driver's license and they never have to be fingerprinted as long as they don't um, let their license expire, as long as they um, you know renew it in time and all that. So they're getting what they call grandfathered in. So all the families and people that currently have um, driver's licenses get to keep them and they don't have to get fingerprinted. For um, people that do not currently have driver's licenses but that want to seek it out for undocumented folks they still can get a driver card but um, they will get fingerprinted <clears throat> and another piece of the victory was that originally those fingerprints and their information applying was going to get sent directly to Homeland Security or ICE which is the people who detain um, undocumented immigrants they were able to successfully get that part out of the bill. So even for folks who are seeking new um, driver's licenses that are currently undocumented, they will um, they do get fingerprinted, and the FBI or some federal government gets their information, but it's not directly to Homeland Security. That you know, so um, you know, there's wins and pieces that are definitely compromised in there. But I think overall, the community's happy with what came out of that, and that they were able to maintain a level of driver's licenses for our undocumented New Mexicans. Um, and then what Emma was talking about, 100%, like I said, how are we um, taking this to the to voting, right? If we want to see any real change, we have to shift um, 
what's happening and really show up in the polls because that's the only place that they feel accountable to. Every time when I talk to legislators that, or I bring people to talk to legislators from different communities, the first thing they ask is, are, is this person from my district? And then the second thing they ask is, are they a voter in my district, right? So um, the reality is, is that right now the majority of people who actually vote are old, white, and mostly males. Um, so there's a big gap between the representation of our of what happens and we have the lowest turnout rates of ever eight percent six percent in some places now for the school board elections so um how we turn out and show and make them accountable to us as a community is is really the next step is there anything else you would like to add no, I just wanted to thank you for having us on and uh, letting us talk to you a little bit about our experience this year. Yes, thank you so much for this opportunity. And if you care to look at the Strong Families report card or join us, we every year we take a group of folks up to the session and we work year round in um, four different counties to have those conversations at the door. Look us up at strongfamiliesmovement.org. And last, I just want to make a plug. I mentioned Alamosa Community Center on the West Side losing its clinic. Um, make the, your calls to the decision makers, state, city, and county level decision makers that um, can hopefully get you know halt that needed program that resides in the South Valley and the West Side um, from closing. I just also wanted to thank uh, many of our allies who helped us over this legislative session. It's very hard to do um, community lobbying and we had a lot of really strong allies who helped throw down like every single day that were in the, the ringer with us and bringing out their families that were also a part of that. And it's not an easy process, so I just wanted to thank all those folks that did that, as well as thanking um, some of our really good allies inside the House and the Senate, um, because they're the ones that are having to be in the rough of it every single day. And they, there were some that did a really good job of throwing down to make sure that our families had what they needed. So I just wanted to thank them. Yes, thanks to all the folks who showed up for families. Thank you, Emma and Adrian, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Thank Generation you. Justice, for bringing the voice to the people. Now we're back to our hosts. I'd like to thank Adrienne and Emma for joining us tonight, and Edwin Rivera as well for asking such interesting questions. This was also Edwin's first interview, so a big shout out to him for doing so well. I really liked how the organizations worked together on these issues to make a difference in our state. It really is incredible how much effort was put in to get New Mexicans the safety and the resources they need. I believe it's important to keep these conversations about issues like behavioral health and public safety alive. Yeah, I definitely agree. Now we have another song for you. This is La Septima Panda by Savi Muriando Miyama. <laughs> Now it's time to take a look at the community calendar. What's coming up in March? Our first event is a lecture called Reframing Resources, Water in the Contemporary Pueblo World, Lecture 2. 
Isleta Pueblo architectural scholar Ted Hohola will discuss water security and quality impact architectural design in our communities in this four-part lecture series. The lecture will be held on Thursday, March 3rd from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Silver and Turquoise Room in the Indian Pueblo Culture Center. The Institute for Indigenous Research, IFAIR, will also be happening on Thursday, March 3rd, as well as Friday, March 4th. Want to give us some more information? Of course, Amali. IFAIR, IFAIR will bring together faculty members from the, across the board of Native American Studies to provide a forum for the interdisciplinary discussion between Native and non-Native te teachers and students. If you're interested in Indigenous Studies, be sure to attend iFair, held in the UNM Student Union Building on Thursday, March 3rd, and Friday, March 4th. What's our next event, Amali? Well, on Saturday, March 5th, the Youth Summit Let's Create invites community members interested in graphic design and video production to learn about the process of going from an idea to a final product. The summit is being held on Saturday, March 5th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Senjo C. Savila on 1317 Isleta Boulevard, southwest in Albuquerque. Be sure to RSVP by March 3rd if you plan to attend. For more information, contact Carlos Flores at 505-804-1411. For an example of where this process and creativity can be take, take you, head to the Guild Cinema for a film screening of a Discovery Channel's new documentary, Racing Extinction, brought to you by the Academy Award-winning filmmakers of The Cove. In Racing Extinction, a team of artists and activists exposes the hidden world of extinction with groundbreaking footage and imagery. To see this new documentary, go to the Gale Cinema on Sunday, March 6th at 1 p.m. Another way to express creativity is through storytelling. The next event is Our Stories, using personal narrative to shift power, happening on Wednesday, March 2nd. Why don't you tell us more about this, Yusuf? Well, this private event is providing a safe space to explore and express stories in a non-judgmental and supportive setting. There will be there will also be food, drinks, and lots of cool prizes. Join Shia from Planned Parenthood and Alana from the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico for a training on how telling your story can build power. This event will be held on Wednesday, March 2nd from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Please RSVP by emailing Alana at aoffield at aclu-nm.org for more information on this location. Finally, the South Valley Academy is hosting a two-day youth summit from March 4th to the 5th. The summit is based on the five elements of hip-hop and includes an interactive workshop, breakdancing, and much more. The workshop and discussion will, be f will focus on ending youth violence and using media as a tool for awareness. And for more information or to register, please contact Carlos Flores at 505-804-1411. Well, there are so many ways to stay active in your community. That's it for our community calendar. Now we have Microphone by Coconut Records. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we have reached the end of our show. We would like to thank everyone who made this show possible. Thank you to Adrienne Barboa of Strong Families, New Mexico, and Emma Sandoval of SWAP. And thank you to Edwin Rivera for interviewing. Our engineer tonight, Jonathan Olanzo. Production assistants came from Camaria Umi, Kateri Zuni, Melissa Harris, and Roberta Rael. And last but certainly not least, much appreciation to all of your youth members here at Generation Justice. We could not do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Our podcasts are now available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate our podcast. We're also active on social media, so like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Tweet, tweet. And Instagram. Generation Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, and of course all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Amali Gordon-Buxbaum. And I'm Yusuf Armour. Next up is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Saturday at 7 o'clock. Tune up the tunes, Jonathan.
What would my head be like if not for my shoulders or without your smile? May I follow you forever.